Have you ever noticed in movie when the director, and there's probably like a real term for this, but I'm not a movie person, so I don't know. So have you ever noticed in a movie when the director would draw your attention to what seemingly is a minor detail that's disconnected from anything else happening at the time? But then later on in the movie, all of a sudden you're going, ah, that's why he did that. Because they connect the dots, you know, and all. Well, that's what happens in our passage, our text today. Let's start off in chapter 9, verse 18. Now, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. And these, these, were, these three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth is populated. Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. Now let's, let's see here. Let's just stop right there. All right? A few things to note. All right? Obviously, by the time this is written, there has been time that has passed. You know, we, we didn't get out of the boat yesterday and today have wine that was grown on some vines that was in, you know, that didn't happen. So some time has expanded, has passed, because we know it, because first of all, Noah has a grandson by now, Canaan. We know that from the passage right here. It says um, Canaan was the son of Ham. And then Noah also had planted a vineyard. You know, he, it says he, became, he was farming, he planted a vineyard. And so the lamb, land had to be sufficiently dry, correct, to be planted, and then not only that, but a crop had to grow and had to be mature enough to produce fruit. Now, a grapevine is not like a corn stalk. A corn stalk is going to grow corn this year. It's going to produce some corn. If you have a good year, you're going to pull the ear off and you're going to eat it. A grapevine is not that same way. It usually, you know, they say, um, I have family that has vineyards and stuff, and they say it takes about three years for a vine to be mature enough to produce fruit that is going to become wine. Now, granted, this is a whole different time frame. People live in 900 years here, so things are different, right? And so perhaps there's something about the growing environment that speeds up that growth, and it doesn't take three years. But nonetheless, what we do know is that time has passed. They didn't just get off the boat. Things have been happening here. And so another observation we can make is found in verse 18. Note that the text highlights one grandson, Canaan. Just one. And that's what I'm meaning a moment ago when I said, you know, like a director in a film, he shows you some strange detail and you're not sure why that detail is highlighted, but later on he connects a dot. That's exactly what the author, that's exactly what Moses is doing in this verse. He's planting a seed. He's pointing your attention to something still to come. Um, and, uh, and so he says, this grandson, this man has a, has a son named Canaan. And that's that clue that we're talking about. So all we, you know, and, and what's happening here is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is pointing to things that have come, and he's telling us to pay attention to these details because they're important for what's to come still. And he does the same thing in verse 22. He mentions again Ham, the father of Canaan. So it's important. It's important and he's, he's drawing our attention to this. Now then, at this point, the story gets rated R. All right? 
as, and you know what I love about the Bible? What I love about the Bible is that it's really real. It's not, it's not like a Walt Disney movie where, I mean, Walt Disney's kind of real because Bambi's mom dies and stuff, you know. There's always a parent who dies in a Disney movie. You ever notice that? Nonetheless, though, there's always a happy ending. Well, and this, there's a happy ending also, but the scripture is just very real. I mean, and Genesis has more than its fair share of real. And here we are with our first real, all right? So in our culture, let me read verse 21. I'm going to start in verse 21 and finish that verse. Finish 21. And, he, and Noah drank of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself in his tent. This is the first time wine's mentioned in the Bible. This is the first time we find someone getting drunk in the Bible. This is not a verse about drinking, a person about drinking. So we're not going to go there with this, as some do. Uh, and then it says he uncovered himself in his tent. Basically, it's just saying, I mean, he got rip-roaring drunk. And somewhere in the midst of all that was wearing not a stitch of clothing. He was like naked as he came out of his mama's womb. There he is in all his glory. And Ham, the father of Canaan, uh, there's that phrase again, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Sham and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their back, uh, laid it upon both of their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so they did not see him. And when Noah awoke from his wine, he knew his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him. Basically, you just got going, what in the world just happened? That's the way Jared talks in the office. What in the world just happened? Yes, amen. <laughs> in our culture, quite honestly, nudity or partial nudity is so prevalent. And it's even more so in other parts of the world. And it's even, and even in the church, and not... We don't have nudity in the church, you know, except for in the nursery, all right? Um, and then it's prevalent down there, all right? Um, but, but, I mean, I'll just say that there are times when, when there is stuff that is far more revealing than it needs to be. And I'll leave that there. That's another sermon. And I've done that one before. But, so, here we are. So, you know, nudity to us is not a big deal. I mean, we either see it or it's alluded to all the time. I-95. I mean, you drive down the street and you like, drive the road and you're like going, I'm supposed to focus right now? And there's something up on a billboard up there. And while it is not full frontal nudity, it is alluding to it. And you know what's on the other side of that bare back, right? And then it's, it's, that's just the way it is. I mean, I don't even do Sports Illustrated anymore online because of just how blatant it is on their website. And some websites are that way. And so we're not really shook up a whole lot about nudity. And so here we have this story, and this is how we read it. So a kid walked in on his dad while his dad was drunk. And then he walked outside and says, hey, guys, dad's in there naked and drunk. And that's what we read. And we're going, okay, what's the big deal? Dad shouldn't have been drunk. Well, that's part of the answer. Let's look at the issue a little further. The word uncovered that we have here 
in verse 21. The, in, the, the nature of that word is disgraceful. It's, it hints at even being intentional. So there was something there that Noah had done that was intentionally disgraceful. And then you move on into verse 22, and you look at what Ham, has, I mean, what Ham has done, and it says, he saw. Well, that word saw is not just like he stumbled in and goes, oh, excuse me. It's more like, hey, what's he look like in there? It has the sense of that he went looking for something. And not only did he go looking for something, but he went looking for something with a maliciousness about him. He had more in mind than just walking in on his dad. You can go further in the passage, and in that same, you finish the saw, and you say, saw the nakedness of his father. And then you get into this passage right here, and more. I mean, like, people have come up with all kinds of ideas about what this means. There are some that range from the obvious, which is where I kind of land, land that he looked on his father without clothing. There are others who say, well, from this passage from this these words and the way they used other places he castrated his father there are others who say that he committed a sexual act with him there are others who would say that from those words that you see on the screen right there that he had sex with his mother now that seems like a stretch doesn't it since the brothers walked in and covered their father so where i'm landing on the obvious of this, which seems to indicate that he went in looking, that he intentionally wanted to see something, and that makes him a voyeur. Now, that's not a term you hear a whole lot, necessarily, but a voyeur is anyone who gets sexual pleasure by looking at others. He gets sexual pleasure by looking at others. And in this case, it's the worst sort. It violates another's dignity, It robs one of their instinctive desire for privacy. It's a form of domination. And it's especially, in this case, because it was his father, it has this this tone of incestuousness and homosexuality. And so here he is. What he did, it says, you know, one of the commentators says, it was disrespectful, inappropriate, carnal, and and that he had an outspoken delight in his father's condition. He went on to say, this, this commentator says, to see someone uncovered was to bring dishonor and to gain advantage for po- potential exploitation. One of the theories about the passage is that, is that he went in because he was looking to usurp his father. He went in because he was looking to establish authority in the family. And you see this is true to some degree or another, later on in other passages, especially like with David, when his own son wanted to usurp his authority, he went in and he slept with all of David's concubines. You know, so he says, what's yours is mine. It was a sense of like of taking over authority, of exerting oneself. He goes on and says, the sons of Noah were shown to, be, to belong to two groups of humankind. Those who were like Adam and Eve hide the shame of their nakedness. And those like Ham, or rather the Canaanites, have no sense of their shame before God. The one group, the line of Shem, will be blessed. The other group, the Canaanites, 
can only be cursed. Now, again, if you're familiar with like just Old Testament history and stuff, you know, um, and I referred to this even last week, you know that as the children of Israel are going over the river and they're going into the land, and on two different occasions, God reminds them, if you obey, it brings blessings. But if you disobey, it brings curses. And so you see the principle being worked out right here in our text, right here in what's happening in this family. But we're not done yet because it goes from bad to worse. Now, if this young man had just walked in, innocently stumbled on his father in this condition, he could have contained the shame of his father by keeping it to himself. But that's not what happened. By sharing it with his brothers, he spread his father's shame. There, there, is, there are, are commentators that says that the way that he shared it, it was almost like he was happy about it and he, was, um, he, he wanted to brag about it. He wanted to expand or he wanted to make his father's shame even greater. And so it's not like he just went out and says, don't go in there, guys. It's kind of like he, he went out and says, you won't believe what's in there, guys. This is great. Well, after the hangover subsides, Noah learns what Ham has done, and he does something that seems really harsh by our standards. He doesn't condemn Ham, the one who stumbled in the tent. He condemns Ham's son, Canaan. Look at the text there. When Noah woke, verse 24, from his wine, he knew that his youngest son had done to him, so he said, cursed be Canaan. Now, you know, it doesn't say, you know, that cursed be him and as well as his children. He went right after the grandson. So he said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he shall be to his brothers. And then he goes on, he blesses Shem, let Canaan be his servant. He enlarges Japheth. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Well, that's just another questionable kind of thing, isn't it? It it, it amounts to this, that Noah was acting as a prophet, and that he announced the future of this particular grandson's descendants. Or even that's the future of his son's descendants is what it should say. He, he, Ham has revealed his character now. He had the opportunity to not behave like this. He had the opportunity to not shame his father. But instead of taking that opportunity, he expanded it, he maximized it, he compounded the shame. And in that, you see the character of, of this son immediately. You also see the character of his two brothers who came in and covered the father and made sure that they didn't compound it. Now, this is not a dyed-in-the-wool principle, but it's true more often than we'd like to admit. And that's that a father brings up a son or a daughter the way the father is. His character, his principles, his behavior, his sin, so often is passed down to the son. 
and to the grandchildren. Family cycles, things happen like that. But this is the thing about that, is that I can say for me myself that after generations of alcoholics in my family, there's not one now. And not because I resisted it, but because Jesus changed their life. And, that, and this room is full of people just like that whose family history is one way, but Jesus intervened, but God, as the saying goes, but God intervened and changed the course of that. Here, Noah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows that this young man is going to follow in the footprints of his father. And that is true. Because the Canaanites were known for their shameless depravity, especially in sexual matters. We'll read about them later as we go into further into the text here in Genesis. So Canaan did become a servant, an enemy of Israel, until ultimately, until about 572 B.C., almost maybe 2,000 years past this, perhaps somewhere in there, I don't know. But many, many, many years later, finally, you read very little ever again about the Canaanites. After Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered the land, you read about them very little. Now, I want to skip part of our text. I want you to go to chapter 10, verse 6. You know, I want to, I want to pause and just reemphasize something. Um, who you are as a person, who I am as a man with the last name of Smith, does not put me outside the reach of the grace of God. Who you are as a man or a woman who is the son or daughter of someone, who perhaps did not know Christ, who does not know Christ, whose life is broken in a shipwreck, does not put you, has not put you, outside of the grace of God. So if you're sitting here today and you're like going, well, my parents suck. I know it. They, a lot of them do. A lot of them do. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, You've been adopted. You've been adopted. And you got a new daddy. And this one is all good. This one will never abandon you. This one will never leave you. This one will spank your bottom in a heartbeat, but because it's for your good. This one, this new adopted father, is here to turn your life around so that you don't have to live like your earthly father. Make sure you get that message today. Make sure you get that message today. Chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizram, and put in Canaan. Notice again here we are talking about Ham, but our focus is not on Canaan. This time it's on a brother, Cush, and not really on Cush, but on Cush's son, because it goes on further and he says, 
Verse 9, Nakush became the father of Nimrod. He became a mighty one on earth. Now then, this is the riddle that I gave you in my afterthoughts email this week. Exactly how does chapter 10, verse 9, have anything to do with Bugs Bunny? Well, I just got to tell you, that rascally rabbit was an educational fountain. You know what I mean? In my home, if you, I mean, the only thing I ever heard of music growing up was Dolly Parton and Porter Wagner, unless it was from one of those Saturday morning cartoons. And that's where I first heard classical music. And I just thought it was the soundtrack to Bugs Bunny. Later on, I found out it was someone really gifted who did all that stuff. I found out it was a genius who wrote that music, you know? I found out that it's called classical music, and it's what the educated folk listen to. I didn't know that. I just thought it's what you did when you were watching Bugs Bunny. Well, Bugs Bunny also changed the term Nimrod. Because up until the 1950s, Nimrod was a term that was used for a great hunter. But Bugs Bunny and his buddy here, Elmer Fudd, you know, he was the eternal hunter who never got his prey. And so Bugs Bunny would say, like, you're no Nimrod, or what a Nimrod. And he didn't mean it like you were a great hunter. He meant it like, what a loser. You're nothing like Nimrod. And so from the about 1950s, especially one particular short film that Bugs Bunny was in, Nimrod took a whole new meaning, and it meant, what a dope. What a loser. And when I found that last week, I was, Mark and I were studying this passage, and I just thought that was so hilarious. That here we are, Bugs Bunny has taken a, a biblical term and turned it on its head. So there you go. For all of those that you know that uh, sent me an email, you know, it's Bugs Bunny and the hunter, all right? So thank you very much for playing. Tune in next time with our quiz. But Nimrod was not a failure at all. He was not a dope. Matter of fact, he was renowned. He was a great hunter. He settled in the land of Shinar, and you'll see that here. Shinar, there you see the yellow circle there. That's the region that is, is known as Shinar, and that gives you a sense of where it's at in the Middle East, in the greater Middle East, and we're going to look at more of the places on that map later, but it says he settled in the region of Shinar. Let's see, where are we out there in the passage? Um, uh, and, and verse 10, and in, in the beginning of his kingdom was in Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalneh, in the land of Shinar. And from that land, he went forth into Assyria. That would be our next slide. He went into the forth into the land of Assyria. He moved north, and he built Nineveh. Now, if you know your other Bible stories, you know Nineveh, don't you? You know Nineveh. Because Nineveh is the great city that Jonah was sent to. And you remember Jonah's problem with Nineveh? His problem with Nineveh was that those people are so incredibly evil, vile, violent. Those people have done things to us that are unspeakable. And you want me to go and to offer them grace? You want me to go there? And so you see, Noah's prophecy about Ham, his children, and in this particular case, Cush's children, proves to be true. It proves to be true. 
the seed of Ham was a sordid lot. They were not good people. And I believe that Nimrod, the mention of Nimrod, Babylon, and Nineveh are here again. They're pointing to something that's going to happen in the future. Moses, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, highlights this stuff because we're reading about Babylon and Revelation. And so here we are in Genesis, and the author's kind of tipping his hat and saying, just pay attention, you'll read about this later. Pay attention, this is coming up again. All right, now meet me in chapter 11. Let's start in verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words, and it came about as they journeyed east that they found them a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Stop right there. Now, a couple of things to note. These aspirations to build a city, the aspirations to build, caused them to move, for one thing. There's a technology kind of issue here. They went from stone to brick. That's interesting. That's worth noting. And also it says in verse 2 that they settled instead of spreading out. You know, what did the Lord say? You know, he said, you know, multiply, spread out all over the world and multiply. But here's this group of people, they've decided that they're not going to go any further. They're going to settle right here, and instead of spreading out, they decide to build a city to start the first urban project. And cities are the direct opposite of spreading out. They are gathering in. Now, this structure, let me see here. And so... They not only wanted to urbanize themselves, but they said they wanted a tower. And they wanted that tower to reach into heaven. And it says, and make a name for themselves. Otherwise, what does this say? We will be scattered abroad the face of the earth. What did God tell them to do? Scatter. And they go, we don't like that idea. We got a better idea. This is what we're going to do. We're not going to scatter. Now, this structure was most likely a ziggurat. This is a photograph from one that still exists in the region. You know, and it's kind of like a platform kind of stacking thing where the, it's really broad on the bottom and it continues to get taller as it goes. But they believe that it was probably only about 70 feet tall. Now, I think there's another. Is there another slide there, Larry? So they believe it's about 70 feet tall. You see how they... One platform, on top of a platform, on top of a platform, so on and so forth. They believe that it was probably only about 70 feet tall. To give you a sense of that, uh, uh, utility poles, two of them are 80 feet. They're about 40 feet apiece. To give you a further sense of that, that would be a 70-foot tall building would be about seven stories, give or take. To give you a further sense of that, this room is 82 feet long. So it's not a big building. It's not incredibly tall. 
So these folks, they want to leave a mark. They want to make a name for themselves. It's like they want to have the Nimrod Tower or the Shinar Ziggurat. It's sort of like they, they want their name to be on something so that when people come through the area again, later on they're like going, oh, this belongs to Nimrod and the Shinars. They were really great people and all. It's kind of like Pennsylvania. It means Penn's Woods. And so you've got this dude on top of buildings and everywhere else. His name is all over things. It's like Trump Tower. We know who built that tower. We know who's famous because of it, right? Now, look at verse 5. I love what God does here. I love the Word of God. It is just written so well. And I think this, this tongue-in-cheek, this, this statement here, verse 5, is almost like a tongue-in-cheek, almost kind of a mocking statement of the efforts of man. So they've built a tower up into the heavens, and what does God say? I came down to it. It never reached me. It didn't get there. Isn't that clever? Isn't that great the way he says that? And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Wow. They wanted a tower built unto the skies, and what does the text say? He came down to see them. It wasn't even big enough to reach God. He came to it. And it's kind of like, that's all you got? That's all you got? I'll come down to your big tower and see it, okay? Because it just didn't quite arrive. And verse 6 says he basically said, okay, let's just break this up. There's nothing to see here. He, and, and he says, behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do and see nothing that they purpose will be impossible for them. Let us go down, confuse their language, that they might not understand another speech. And the Lord scattered them. The Lord did what he wanted to do from the very beginning, abroad from there, over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. There are many who say that this passage is kind of like the early passages of Genesis where it's stated and then it's restated with more detail. There are some who say that, that, chap, this, that this section of chapter 11 took place before the, um, the, the nations here in chapters 10, 6, where it talks about where everyone went. So God says, let's just scatter this up. There's... There's something happening here in this tower. And in 1946, Irving Berlin wrote a song for Annie Get Your Gun. If you know Annie Oakley, she was a sharpshooter um, in the late 1800s. And they made a play, they wrote a play called Annie Get Your Gun. In 1946, Irving Berlin wrote a song for it. And it sets up the shooting scene between Annie Oakley and Frank Butler. He's a rival marksman and eventually becomes her husband in real life and all. And the song opens with these lyrics. Anything you can do, I can do better. Anything, I can do anything better than you. No, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't, no, you can't. Then the next phrase is this. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. That phrase right there, if Shinar had known Anna Oakley, they would have said, this is our phrase. They don't have an eagle's cheer. They have that cheer right there. I'll be greater than you. Anything you can do, I can do better. 
anything you can be, I can be greater. And sooner or later, I'll be greater than you. I'll be greater than you. It's not about building a tower. It's not about making a building. It's about establishing power and authority that is contrary to God's power and authority. It's about being as great or even greater than God. It's an act of rebellion. You told us to scatter. We're not interested in that. We're going to stay right here. And not only are we going to stay right here, we're going to build a tower right up to your front door. And when we get there, you're going to hear us knocking. And he says, I went down to their tower and I scattered them. This is an act of rebellion. And it's saying, whatever you can do, God, we will do it as well. Anything that points... To you, God, we will explain it away. God, you didn't create mankind. He evolved. God, you didn't create the universe. It happened in this inexplicable big bang. God, you're not the only one who can make a baby. This week, did you hear the news? Scientists have successfully, for the first time, grown human eggs in a laboratory from the earliest stages of ovarian tissue all the way to full maturity. It had never been done before this week. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'll be greater than you. That is exactly what Satan said. In the before time, he says, I want to be where you are. I want to be as great as you. And God said, that's not happening And he struck him down. Ultimately, mankind has been a usurper of God from the very beginning right through to this very day in my own heart this morning. Anything you can be, I can be greater. I want the control. I want the last word. I want the final say. I want to make my own choices. And even when we are forced to give in, Even like in this case here, when he scatters them and he gives them different languages, mankind is like that child who gets put in the corner and time out and has to go sit in the corner. And the child says, I might be sitting in this chair on the outside, but inside I'm standing up. That is the very heart of mankind. I might not be able to outdo you yet, but on the inside I am standing up. Is that you? Is that me? Yeah, I'll just tell you straight up, it's me. To the core, it's me. Are you sitting here this morning looking all like you're all about God and all that nice stuff? But whose name is on your building, folks? Whose name is on that tower that you're building? Is it you? Is it yours? Is it God's? These city builders in this text were expressing their independence from God. They're big boys now. We can make a big building. Watch us. And we're going to build this all the way to you. Yesterday at the marriage conference, Paul Tripp said that people think that maturity 
is about independence. But he said that that's not true at all. He said spiritual maturity is realizing how dependent we really are and how dependent we really are on him. This morning, God is at work in this room. He's convicting some of us about the cities we're building to make us great. And the question I believe he's asking me, the question I believe he's asking us, is there any area of our life that has not been subjected to his authority, to his will, to his divine plan? Is there any area of our life where we're saying, I'm going to stop right here and do this one my way. I've got control of this. And I'll let you know when I need you to step in. Think about that. Ponder that. Let's pray. Father, this morning, um, your word convicts me. My heart convicts me for my attitudes, my words, my actions. And how I want to control all things and how I want all things to work out to my plan to the way that I want them without very little input from you or very little consideration for what you might be doing. I raise up my all-knowing power and equate it with yours. And I confess that to you. But I am not alone, Lord, I know that because I am not the only human in this room There are others of us who also are building cities and putting their names on it and making a name for themselves. Lord, today, we as a people will pause before you and confess and seek to tear down what we've made so that you can make what is good and perfect and eternal in our lives and in our church. Lord, there is nothing about this building here, this corner of this property, this name on this building, Crossing Community Church, that needs to be anything except for what you make it. If you wear us down to 10 people, if you wear us down to nothing, it's all about you. We do not seek to build something for our sake and for our name and to be known in this community. We seek to make you known in this community. Don't ever let us get caught up in that rat race. We love you. We adore you. Build a city in us with your name on it.